Amen. All right, saints, if you would, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Now, this Wednesday, we covered a good section of chapter 8. We made it all the way down to verse 30. And so, but what I want to do this morning is just cover one aspect of it. So as you're here in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and keep in mind that if you do not have a Bible, just um, get someone's attention, we'll get you a Bible. If you do not own a Bible, please keep the Bible as our gift to you. Um, Just, I want you to know how much God loves you, and so this is just His gift to you, Um, so it's yours. But here in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, What I want to do, if you're familiar with this passage, the first 11 verses deal with a woman who was caught in an act of adultery. And the scripture says she was caught in the very act. I want you to understand that that's not the most devastating verse in this passage. The most devastating verse in this passage is one that we're going to look at. We're going to expound on it. The verse is John chapter 8 verse 9. Now, what I want to do is I want to keep us into a little bit of a context. So I want to back it up into verse 8 and then into verse 9 so that you can understand what's happening here a little bit in context. If you are not familiar with the entirety of this story, this will lock you in at least. So keep in mind that Jesus was there teaching in the temple. As he was there teaching in the temple, the religious leaders came and interrupted his teaching, brought a woman, and they said, you know, Master, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Moses in the law says that we should stone her. Well, what do you say? And so they were hoping not to, in a sense, deal with this woman, but verse 6 says an amazing thing, that they said this testing him, that they might have something which to accuse him. This was all a setup to simply accuse Jesus Christ, that either he would side with the woman and he would become that friend of sinners, but at the same time, you just reject the law. You're not one that we could listen to. You're throwing the law out. Now, if he accepted the the premise of the law that the woman should be stoned, keep in mind that Rome had already taken corporate punishment away from the Jews. He couldn't do it anyways. And so then he would no longer be that friend of sinners. So they're thinking, hey, either way, we win. Either way, you lose. This is their thought process. And so they did this as a test to him that they could accuse him. But in verse 8, it makes this statement, he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, he's writing on the ground, and and earlier he wrote on the ground one more time before he said, you who is without sin, let him be the first to cast the stone. And he'd written, and the first time he writes, the way the Greek words it is he writes against. He's simply saying, this is a law, and I'm writing this in its truth. This is a law against But as he comes down, he writes the second time. And I think it's important to make a note that there's two times that the Lord bends down and he writes with his finger. Amazingly, if you're aware of what happened in the book of Exodus, when God gave the law, the first time he writes it with his finger. And what does Moses do? Moses comes down, he sees sin in the camp, he throws the tablets down and he breaks them. The law was broken before the people even received them. And what does God do? He writes another time. 
he allows another tablet to be written. And that tablet, the second tablet, not the first, but the second one, what does God do with it? He instructs Moses to put it in the Ark of the Covenant, and that's covered by a thing called the mercy seat, that seat in which the blood was sprinkled. And so the law is now covered. That second writing is covered by the blood. It was covered in what was known as the mercy seat. So it's covered by the blood and mercy. And now we see here, the, this, the saddest verse or the most difficult verse that I find in this entire passage. Not the fact the woman was caught in adultery, but look at verse 9. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. This, to me, is the most devastating part of this whole verse. That these people walked away. They walked away one by one by one. And in fact, every single person walked away with the exception of the woman who was there in the midst of Jesus. I want to take you to one passage so that you become aware of just a contrast. These men, they were convicted by their conscience. And that's what it says here in verse 9. These who heard it being convicted by their conscience. They understood there was a standard. Jesus said, you are who without sin, cast the first stone. They all walked away. They realized that something in them was wrong, that they were a sinner, that they really didn't have that judgment, the righteous judgment to make an accusation or to throw the stone at her first. But I want you to see a comparison of those who were convicted of their sin, convicted by their conscience, and walked away to another passage in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 7, two verses to be aware of. Jot them down if you're a note taker. And I'm going to read to you from Luke 7 verses 37 through 38 so that you can use this as a contrast. It says in Luke 7, I'm going to back it up to Luke 36, but it says, Luke 7, 36, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat. Now verse 37 and 38, the key verses. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Okay, now these men knew they were sinners, right? They walked away one by one. Here's a woman. She also is a sinner. Verse 37, she says, When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and she stood at his feet behind him weeping, And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair on her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them in the fragrant oil. Understand this woman's response of recognizing that she's a sinner. She comes to Jesus broken. She comes to Jesus seeking. She comes to Jesus worshiping. Now, this Pharisee doesn't understand it. Simon doesn't really get the whole thing, what's going on. He says, boy, if you knew what kind of woman this is, I know what kind of woman this is. Do you know what kind of woman this is? See, all you see is the sinner. I see the humble brokenness of her heart. You only see an act that she did. 
And when you take a look at here, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Can adultery be forgiven? Can something that vile, something that crucial, something that rips apart a marriage, can something like that be forgiven? Keep in mind, in the Old Testament, they were right. The law says that what? Both the woman and the man that committed adultery should be stoned. They should be put to death to keep the people pure. But can adultery be forgiven? Well, understand the most public statement and act of adultery in the scripture was done by none other than King David himself, the man after God's own heart. When Nathan came to him and says, David, you're the man. You are guilty. You are the one who, although you had all your wives, you went to the one man, Uriah, and his only wife, and you took her to yourself, and, and through that you had a child with her. And then not only did you have an adultery, when you had all these wives and all these concubines, you went to the one woman who wasn't your own, that belonged to someone else, and you, you took her to yourself, you had a child, and then you had the audacity to murder Uriah, her husband. And along with his death, other Israelites who went into the battle that... Joab says, take out the wall, go to the wall, knowing that they would die. You not only killed Uriah, but other Israelites. And God told David this, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. Your, your, your sin is going to be forgiven. But, but keep in mind that because of what you've done, a sword will never leave your house. So can adultery be forgiven? Yeah, God has proved it with David. And then God shows it again through his mercy and his grace with this woman. But it's important to understand that as this man, Simon, saw this woman and saw her act, that, that he began to, to just put her down. Do you know what kind of woman this is? And the Lord kind of corrected Simon because eventually in Luke seven forty four, Jesus, he would turn to the woman and, and say to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman anointed my feet with fragrant oil. And therefore, I say to you that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her in verse 48, your sins are forgiven you. A beautiful thing that I want you now to take a look and to see when this woman was convicted of her sin, she came broken, she came seeking, she came worshiping Jesus Christ because in him was forgiveness of sin. These men, rather than coming and humbling themselves as they were convicted of coming to the place of saying, wow, I'm convicted of my sin. I'm going to come and I'm going to kneel with this woman. I'm going to come and bow down with this woman. I'm going to come and come before Jesus because only in him is forgiveness of sin. They didn't come to him. Do you understand what verse 9 says? And this is the most devastating passage, more devastating than adultery, that those who heard it, verse 9 of John 8 being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. They walked away from Jesus. They left the place of forgiveness. They left that place of grace. That is devastating to me. 
more devastating than the adultery. What? Because we see her. He says, I, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more, he says at the end of the passage. But that is devastating. These men were convicted. They, they knew the words of Christ were true. The things that he said as he was writing whatever against, as he was writing in the sand, he says, you who are without sin, let him throw a stone at her first. They recognized we had sin. They, they knew the words of Christ were true. But instead of humbling, coming to him, humbling themselves and asking for forgiveness, they walked away. Isn't that amazing? You have one of two choices. You could be like the woman and come to Christ and receive forgiveness. Or you can simply say, oh yeah, that was pretty bad. I shouldn't do that. And simply walk away. Understand what the conviction that God, through his word and through the Holy Spirit, and also through nature itself, brings upon us. Now, they were convicted by their conscience, but they weren't convicted by the Holy Spirit. And this is a key, and this is what we want to look at here this morning, about where this conviction is. And if you've ever been convicted, if you've ever been challenged by the, the words of Christ, the life of Christ, the words in the scriptures, and, and simply the, the very leading that nature itself produces as far as God and his goodness and his holiness. But if you've ever been convicted just by your conscience, you can walk away. You can walk away and say, yeah, I was wrong. And you walk away and nothing changes. But when you want to change, you come to Christ. And you seek forgiveness, and you receive forgiveness, and this is what it is. But, but they knew they didn't meet God's righteous standard. That's why I said, you who are without sin. They knew there was a sin, but they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't believe that they could come to him. They didn't believe that they could receive forgiveness with him. They didn't understand that it would be his work, his death upon the cross, that would bring life to them, that his death on the cross would allow them to have forgiveness of sins. So understand that as we're looking at this, conviction of the conscience does not lead to a place of surrender. They were not surrendered. They were convicted by their conscience and they walked away. Understand, when the word of God is spoken or the spirit of God begins to speak and you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, you come to a place of surrender. The woman the woman there in Luke 7, she came to a place of absolute brokenness and surrender. And she came to a place of recognizing the lordship of Jesus Christ. She came to him and him alone. She came into a place where she knew she would be judged. Simon judged her. She came to a place that they would know that she was a sinner. It didn't stop her from coming to Christ. No amount of judgment, no amount of anyone thinking anything would stop her from coming to Christ. And so we see here that when it's just a conviction of conscience is when some people will experience maybe a, a prick in, in their spirit, they'll, a, a prick in their conscience that they've committed a wrong. And, and I'll tell you what, that happens from the time that we're little. This little tinge to say, oh, don't go there. This is wrong. And you get that little tiny prick in your conscience. This is a warning. Don't do this. It's not a good thing. And what happens is this, they get a prick in the conscience and that they've committed a wrong. Some people, what they're concerned about is this. They really don't know so much that it's a wrong and they don't have a prick of a conscience, but they have a fear of judgment. If I do this, I'll get in trouble. So you may not agree with, with the way it's done, but you're, you submit to it because 
If I don't, I'll get in trouble. I mean, how many times have you been going down a road and the speed limit says 35 miles an hour and you're thinking, why only 35? This road, I I see everybody zipping by me at 45, 50, and they seem to be doing fine. Why should I do 35 when everybody else does far more? I mean, think about just going on the freeway. When a freeway says its speed is 55, you're thinking, this is just wrong. As you go just south of the city, the speed limit drops down to 50 on a four-lane freeway. And you're thinking, why only 50? People are zipping by me at 70, 75. Why should I have to go the speed limit? Well, the reason being is this. I'm afraid of getting pulled over. I'm afraid of just someone pulling over and saying, yeah, uh, Pastor Lowell, why are you doing this speed limit when it should be this? And, and you have that fear of judgment. You have that fear of punishment. And so the reason I do the speed limit, well, the reason I go just a little over the speed limit, not a lot over the speed limit, and I keep myself in a place of grace. I don't go any more than three or four, but I recognize there's a balance in here, And but I'm not speeding per se. I know I've broken the law because keep in mind, if you see a speed limit that says 35, and you drive 35, but in your mind, you think this is stupid and you should be able to drive faster, you've already broken the law. You, you broke it in your heart. You broke it in your spirit just by, by thinking the law is wrong. You already broke the law. So, you know, I'm not saying you broke it now speed. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm trying to say is this, that when you come to a point of the law, you're convicted. And sometimes you're convicted because you realize it's a wrong other times you're convicted because you don't want to have a punishment. And, and it's amazing that what happens is this, that in those two places of conviction, sometimes we, we recognize here that, that when you have that spark that's concerning the judgment, that you know someone should be punished or I should be punished, but you don't have a desire to make it right. You don't have a desire to make it right to a standard that the God revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that this is what so happens because when we see that conviction, conviction is when darkness meets light. We'll put it that way. When, when, when those who are in the darkness, the light shines, all of a sudden you realize there's a contrast. Something here isn't right. When the light there shines in the darkness, when sin is confronted with holiness, when, when one act is confronted with a standard that God declares in his word, this is where conviction comes. And so keep in mind that when sin is confronted with holiness, and it's a standard that was lived out perfectly by Jesus Christ. Understand that. This standard, the standard of God saying, be perfect as my Father in heaven was perfect. Jesus lived out that standard. He actually went to heaven and he could go to heaven because he was perfect in his thoughts, his words, his deeds. And because he was perfect, he had a right to go. But what did he do? He chose to go to the cross and die. The one person on earth who should have never died, those who deserved death because they had sinned and their sin deserved death, they wanted to put this holy, perfect, sinless Messiah to death. They couldn't stand that light. And so conviction is being condemned by your own conscience when you realize that there's a standard that you failed to meet. 
And, and whether that standard is your own standard or the standard that wasn't set by you, you recognize that there's a standard. Paul says something really incredible and unique in the book of Romans. I want to read to you a portion in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 7. I'll be there for a few verses, so if you want to turn there, you can. If not, just listen to what Paul talks about as far as this area of conviction of sin. I'm going to start in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. I'm going to read down to verse 25, and I won't comment too long on it, but I will stop in a few points to look at it. But Paul begins this portion of Scripture in Romans 7, 7, saying this, what shall I say then? Is the law sin? Is the law bad? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law has said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking the opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. From apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. What is he saying? He's simply saying this, that there is, sin was always in existence. I just wasn't aware of it. And I wasn't aware of it until I actually read somewhere that said it's sin, the law. The law said here's a standard and you failed to meet it. Now once I wasn't even aware of sin because there was no law that said, you know, if there isn't a speed limit sign, how do you know? You're only supposed to go 35, right? But if there's a speed limit sign, now you know I went over it, or I know in my mind I want to go over it. I've known that I've broken that law. So without the law, there isn't the real knowledge of sin. But as soon as the law is written, as soon as God says, here's my standard, now I know. And I once was alive, thinking I was alive, until the law came and said, you're dead. You're dead in your sins. The soul that sins shall surely die. That we recognize here, this is that word of God. Now, as it comes out, he says this in verse 11, For sin taken an occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, just, and good. The problem isn't in the law. The problem was in my ability to keep it. Now, verse 13, Has then... What is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And all he's saying is, listen, the same truth. You can live a life until the law says this action is bad. And then you've got to stop the action. Then you've got to realize, how do I pay for the action I've already done? And so the law is not wrong. The law is holy. It's just, it's good. But my ability to keep it shows that this law brings about me that says I'm in a place of death, that I'm a failure to keep this law. Now, Paul does this, and it's so amazing here in verse 15. This is where I'm talking about the conviction that comes. Paul says, for what I am doing... I do not understand. I don't understand what I'm doing. What does he mean? He says this, For what I will to do, I want to do good things, 
For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, I do. Has that ever happened to any of you? That you wanted to do something good and you didn't do it. And then there's things that you hate about your life and you still do it. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, I do not want to be like my parents. And I'm finding that I'm like my parents. I do not want to be angry like my dad. And yet I find myself being angry. I do not want myself to, to, do, to be you know, short-tempered. And yet I'm short-tempered. I don't want myself to go here. And yet I find myself going there. You do things that you hate. And you go, why do I still do those things that I hate? And why don't I do the things that I really know that are good things to do? And here's what Paul says. He said, I don't understand. I just don't understand it that I don't do the things that I want to do and practice those things, and I do the things that I hate. Now in verse 16, he says this, if then I do what I will not to do, if I'm doing those things that I hate doing, I agree with the law that it's good. I agree that the law says this is bad, and I'm doing it, and I hate myself for doing it. I don't know how to stop it. And then he says this, now verse 17, But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. It's the old nature. For I know that within me, that is within my flesh, nothing good dwells. For in it to will is present with me. I want to do it, but how to perform that is good. I don't find it. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, verse 19, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Have you ever found that law to be true? That evil is present in you. I want to do good, but I don't do good. I don't want to judge, but yet I find myself judging. I don't want to you know, do the things that I recognize are wrong. I don't want to be like my parents, and yet I'm finding out I'm like my parents. I don't want to do those things that I recognize, but that's who I am. And so there's a law that I'm finding this truth. And I think it's so important to recognize that what you're learning is this. It's conviction of the conscience. There's a law. I don't want to do the things that I'm doing. And I recognize I'm convicted in my conscience. Now, he says this in verse 20. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. And I find a law, verse 21 again, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. There's a part of my spirit that loves the, the word of God, that loves his life and loves his love and loves what he wants to do. But I see another law, verse 23, in my members warring against the law of my mind. This carnal nature wars against that spiritual nature. And so he says, I see this other law and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. I rarely go in the direction I want to do. I so naturally go in this other direction. Keep in mind that it's been said like this. Any dead fish can go downstream, but it takes a live one to go upstream. And so for those of you that are wanting to catch salmon, it's just about that time for the live fish to go upstream. That's what we're looking Any dead fish can go downstream. 
It doesn't take any effort to just go with the flow. But if you're walking in righteousness, this is what he says. It takes the work of the Spirit. It takes a work of, of God. It takes his word. And then he says this in verse 24. And maybe you have recognized this same passage in your own conscience. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm just exhausted and in wanting to do good and not doing good. And then he's asking, who's, who's going to be deliver me? How do I get out of this, this, this rotation? And then he says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He finds that the answer to how he does it is not a what. It's not a how, it's a who. It's I come to Christ I come to Christ like that woman came to Christ and realized that, you know what, you're, you're not going to be perfected, but you can be forgiven. And this is what we stand on. This is what we go. We know that evil is present in us. And even after you come to Christ, I've been walking as a Christian a long, long time. I've been a teacher of the word of God for, what, coming on 24, 25 years now. And, and I want to be honest with you. I'm a sinner, still, still a sinner. I'm like Paul, I don't want to do that, yet I find myself thinking that. I, I find myself frustrated with, with how people drive and thinking, you know what, you should take away their license, you should take away their cars, and you should not allow them to do anything but get on a bus because they're putting everybody in danger the way they drive in this city. But what is that? That's sinful thinking. That's sinful thinking. That, that, that's just me and my own pride. Oh, I'm driving better than they are. But why am I driving better? Because I fear a ticket. Be because I, I think that it's wrong to go over the speed limit, even though the speed limit may not be a very good speed limit for the road. They know what they're doing. But I think it's important here, and I think it's so important to recognize that, that God, what he will do is this, is he will use the Holy Spirit. And there's a place where now God says, I was gracious at one point, I was open at one point, but now things have changed. Now it's just not the conviction of your, your conscience. That's not how it works anymore. There's a portion. I just want to read to you one scripture that in Acts chapter 17, Paul has a conversation with the thinkers there in Athens. And what he does is this. He talks about a, a, a plaque, a statue that they've made because they're in Greece. They wanted to worship every god. And they didn't want to leave one out. They want to be inclusive. If there's a god, we want to acknowledge you because we don't want to offend you, right? Now, he, Paul does something unique. He points out one of their... Areas of worship that was to what was known as the unknown God. And Paul says, this is the one I want to talk to you about. And so there, in Acts chapter 17, verse 23, he says, I'm going to talk to you about this concerning the objects of your worship. And I found one that was said to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, I'm going to proclaim him to you. And he goes down and he talks about the goodness of God and the grace of God and how God gives them life, how God gives them, how God is great and he is sovereign and he does all these things. But then he says this in verse 30. So in Acts 17, verse 30, he makes this statement, truly these times of ignorance, how you sought God and how you lived your life, these times of ignorance, God overlooked 
but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Do you understand that there came a point in the lives of these men that what God determined was this. Now you don't just live the life the way you want to live your life. Now you need to come to a place of repentance. What does that mean? You need to agree with God that you're wrong. You need to agree with God that he's right. You need to come to a place of humbling yourself before him and coming to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus said basically the same thing in Luke 13. I want to read to you the first nine verses, but he says this. Just listen to it. Therefore... There were present at the season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Now keep in mind that the people didn't like the Galileans in the first place. They thought the Galileans were hicks. In other words, it's like you and I would think of the people that live up in the UP. Hey there, don't you know? You know, we'd look at them like, wow, you're, you know, the, the, the people who are way down south. They the, the kind of live out in the boondocks and in a trailer park somewhere. And we think, you know, you're, you're hey, how you doing? You know, and, and you think you're a hick. What do you know? And yet they would look at the Galileans already as being less. They, they looked to them as far as where they grew up and then what they did. I hope you don't judge me because I was born and raised in Minnesota. Now, now you can. I admit it. I'm doing a lot to try to overcome that. I actually own a Packer hat. I just want you to know I do own one of those, and it, it says, Go Pack Go. And, and so I'll wear that when I go out because I want people to like me. And so, you know, I, I have that. But don't judge me from where I grew up. Don't judge me from the lifestyle that I had. Look to me as far as I'm in Christ. This is who I am. And so we don't judge according to the outward. But they were judging the Galileans. And they said, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Do you understand? He says, don't judge their sin. Judge your own. And you got to deal with your own. It's amazing how those who are accusers, and let me just change that a little bit, how we who are accusers, we are so apt to judge another. Remember what Jesus said? That we so often look at the planks or the specks that are in our brother's eye, and we refuse to look at the planks that are in our own. See, we say, hey, let me, let me deal with the speck that is in your eye, brother, this little piece of sawdust, and you fail to recognize there's this beam hanging out of your own eye. What he's saying is the sin that is in you is far worse than that sin that is in someone else. To them, it's a speck. To you, it should be nothing. Your own sin should be huge. And so this is what Jesus is saying. I tell you, unless you repent, you deal with the planks in your own eye, you will likewise perish. Or those 18 whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he spoke this parable to them. A man planted a seed in the vineyard and came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said, sir, let it alone this year also, and I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not after that, then you can cut it down. Jesus is coming to look for fruit. And the fruit that he's looking for is a fruit of repentance. 
coming to him, belief in him. Those are the things that he's doing. So it's important for you to recognize that there's this conviction of the conscience. The conviction of the conscience will take a few areas that we talked about. One, there's a tinge in you that there's a wrong that you've done. There, there may be a little fear that if I do this, I'll get punished, and so I won't go there. And that, that's that conviction of the conscience. But it always fails to do one thing. The conviction of the conscience fails to bring you to the point of, how do I get right with God? This is the issue. Now, the Holy Spirit does something amazing. I want you guys to turn in your Bibles over to the Gospel of John, just a couple of chapters over from where we're looking here in chapter 8 to verse to chapter 16. In John chapter 16, we'll get there and we'll look at it a little bit more in depth in a few weeks, but I want to take you to one part of it right now so that you can begin to understand a little bit of here what Jesus is trying to communicate showing the difference between the conviction of the conscience, like these men who walked away, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, like the woman who came to him. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus makes this statement, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, one to come alongside One who's of like me, the helper, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, verse 18, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now notice the conviction of the Holy Spirit takes on three positions. Three positions. One, when he has come, verse 8, he will convict the world of sin. He will convict the world of righteousness and he will convict the world of judgment. So, of sin, what is he saying? He says, verse 9, of sin because they do not believe in me. The one sin that is above all other sins is this, is the rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is Messiah. It's the one sin. He said, the sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in me. Understand that the sin of unbelief is is the the key to condemning every man, woman, and child. The, The key to saving every man, woman, and child is what? Believe in him. This is it. What are the works that we must do to have this life? Believe in him whom he sent. Always it comes back to Jesus believing in him. And understand that we first must believe that God loved the world so much that he would send, and he desires all men to be saved, that he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead. And and, and he would pay the price on the cross in our stead. This is what it's all about. I think it's so important. A couple of verses, just jot them down if you're note takers or just pay attention as I'm going through that. But but in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the author of Hebrews says something absolutely powerful. He says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There has to be blood that is shed before sin can be forgiven. Peter says something absolutely amazing in his gospel. I want to read to you just a couple of verses. But in Peter's epistle... In 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verse 13 through 23. Let me read it in its context. But Peter begins this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, only one focal point that I want to give to you. I want to give to you grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, he says in verse 14, not confirming, conforming yourself to your former lust in your ignorance. In other words, not doing the carnal sins that you used to do, unaware of all the sin that you were doing. You don't conform to that, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. You don't walk in your old life, but you allow the spirit and the word of God and the revelation of him to transform your lives. But he says this in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I'm holy. And if you do call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. God watches over everything that you do. So understand, every sin will be judged. Now here's the thing. When it's judged, it's either going to be judged there on the cross as the handwriting of the requirement that was against us is taken out of the way. Jesus nails it to the cross. He puts it upon himself. He takes our sin upon himself. Or you don't allow Jesus to take your sin and you say, no, I'll deal with it myself. I don't want to have to come to cross to the cross. I don't want to have to come to Christ. But this is what Peter begins to say. He says, and if you call, verse 17 of 1 Peter 1, on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't do it through works. You weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct, revived by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. As a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit, in sincere love of the brother, love one another fervently and with a pure heart, and having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruption through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. It's an amazing thing that he talks about, the key being, verse 19 of 1 Peter 1, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. That's my access to God. That's what purifies my conscience. That's what tells me I'm right with God, that I don't have to fear the judgment. It's coming to the understanding of who Jesus Christ is and only who Jesus Christ is. It's coming to the work of Jesus Christ and only to the work of Jesus Christ, knowing that before the foundation of the world, he was foreordained that he would come and he would die. And that we who believe in God, that God raised Jesus from the dead, and gave him glory so that our faith and hope, they're in the work of what God did through the person of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, but once you believe in him, then we go, we, we purify our souls. There's a change of our attitude. There's a change of our thoughts. There's a change of who we are. And it's so important to recognize that this is where we come to God through the person, the work of Jesus Christ. 
he's our propitiation. He's the one who's made us right, who brings God's satisfaction back to us. So we understand that here what Jesus is speaking about this whole issue of this work of the Spirit, it began in verse 9 of John 16, of sin because they do not believe in me. That's the first thing, belief in Christ. You have to know that he is a propitiation. His work is what's there. If you don't believe in him, everything else is, is, doesn't hold up anymore. You can go through all the other work, but you have to believe that Jesus is the only person that makes you right. So the first sin that the Spirit convicts you in is because they do not believe in me. They don't accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The second thing is this in verse 10. After he convicts them of sin because they do not believe in him, he convicts them of the sin of unbelief, then it's of righteousness. Then that there's a standard that man does not initiate, that man does not need to approve of. Jesus could go to the Father. Why? Because he lived the standard. He knew the standard, but he says of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. I have set a standard. I've lived this perfect and sinless life that you can see that it could be done. My life, Jesus says, is that standard. And your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. You have to be perfect, just as my Father heaven is perfect, just as I am perfect in word and action. That what we see in the life of Jesus is this beautiful picture of the beauty of holiness that is God walking here in our midst. We see him loving the sinner. We see him ministering to the sinners. And we see him even reaching out to those who want nothing to do with him, that want to kill him. He's still talking to them, still sharing about the truth. And then through this, through this righteousness that comes, we realize that righteousness is not our own, but the righteousness has been imparted to us. It's a gift. This is what we realize. There's a standard. We fail to meet that standard. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit, what it does is this. In my life, in your life, it shows me the ugly depravity that is my heart. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked at areas of your life and you loathe the sin that is in your heart. I mean, it becomes not, not that you're aware of it, like, oh, wow, that's just ugly, and then you walk away. But you really, the Spirit allows you to focus on it, and you're like, man, I loathe this part of me. I do not want this part of me. And this is where the conviction of the Holy Spirit does, is there's this loathing for the sin, and then it gives you a desire for purity, I want in my life, I want my thoughts to be pure to you, Lord. I want my life to be pure before you, Lord. And I want you to accept this life of purity that I'm doing in your honor. It's just, it's one that, a life of gratitude. It's not that I have to, but I want to. And this is the heart. So the conviction of the Holy Spirit brings us into the light of holiness. And it will always do that couple of passages I want to share with you. Just jot them down if you're note takers or just pay attention if you're not a note taker. But the first one I want to do is I want to read to you just a portion from Job chapter 40. Now Job has been arguing with God for quite a while in this book. He's been arguing with his friends. He's been arguing with God. But in verse 40 or chapter 40 verse 1 through 7, 
God now speaks to Job. God actually comes down and talks to Job. He's been talking to God and talking to God when God's in heaven. And now God comes down in this world and talks to Job. And it says in Job chapter 40, verse 1, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. God has been telling, Job has been telling God, you're wrong. This is just, this is, this is not right. What, what's going on isn't good. And so God says, are you going to contend with me? Are you going to correct me? Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am vile. <laughs> Job was thinking, I'm doing good, guys. God comes down and says, you really want to question me? As Job becomes aware of God, he says this word, behold, I am vile. What shall I say to you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but now I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Whoa. When God says, listen, you're, you're talking about me. And Job says, are you going to question me? And Job said, he puts I'm putting my hand over my mouth. I'm not saying another word. And amazingly, God says, okay, you are going to talk to me. I'm going to talk to you, and you're going to answer me. And this is where we see when you become aware of that incredible holiness of God, that it basically just slams your mouth shut. You want to do nothing. There was this prophet by the name of Isaiah, in the first few chapters of the book that he wrote, in Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, he pronounced woes upon woes upon woes upon Jerusalem, upon Israel, upon the nations surrounding Israel. He just says, woe are you, and woe are you, and woe are you, because he was a prophet of God. And he recognized how they failed. And then something amazing happens in chapter 6 that, that God brings Isaiah up to him. And as, as he sees that, he goes, oh my goodness. And, and he, saw, he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the Lord was sitting on his throne. And the robe, his robe filled this temple. And, and the, there was smoke and there were seraphim all with six wings, and they were crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And when Job, or when Isaiah was seeing this, the doors were shaken, smoke fills the temple. He saw the power, the holiness of God, and he says this in, in verse 5 of Isaiah 6. So I said, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm not woeing them anymore. I've seen the glory of God. I recognize my depravity. He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips. I've been telling them woe, and yet in my life, now I'm so aware of these planks that are in my eye. I recognize that. And so he says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now that I see your beauty of holiness, I understand you. Now it's woe is me, not woe is them. And so he recognizes, and this is where God says, just, just take a toll, touch his mouth, he's clean. I'm going to do this work in him. And it's so amazing that what happens is we begin to see the beauty of holiness. 
When we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes and he touches us and he convicts us. Remember we talked about how David was forgiven of his adultery? But I want to share with you one passage. It's actually a psalm that he wrote when Nathan came to him. And the the psalm was found in Psalm 51. And, And this is what David talks. This is what David shared as an act of worship once he was forgiven. But he says this in Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Do you understand David's so aware of the enormity of his sins? He says, God, I can't do anything. Only you can blot that out. Only you can take care of it. He says, you wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I'm going to acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. And against you and you only have my sin. I've done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak. I'm going to admit my wrong. So that every time your word says, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm going to admit it's right. Now, I don't know if you've ever been like me. It's less now than it used to be. But there was a time early on in my walk that I struggled, and most of you know this, I struggled with anger. I just did. I, it, was, it was my sin. And so I understand when I see people that are angry, and they may not say anything, but I can see it in their eyes, I can see it in their countenance, I can go, wow, you are angry. There are a lot of times when I'm doing marital counseling, and the wife will say something, and the husband's like, And it's like, oh boy, you're going to be in trouble when you get in that car. And I start praying for already because that husband is angry. He's just, he's seething inside. He's not saying anything now, but oh, just wait, wait. And I knew that anger. I know that anger. And it was a time where I would get angry. And God in his spirit would convict me saying, Lowell, you're in sin. And I would argue with God. I said, no, I'm not. I would not have gotten angry if they wouldn't have done that. I would have been fine. (laughs) listen, they didn't put that anger in you. That was just a bump in the road to reveal what was already in you. They didn't put that anger in you. You literally, as we recognize this, it it was your anger, you did it. And I would argue with God for months. I kid you not, months. He'd say, you were wrong. And I'd say, no, I wasn't. They were the one that were wrong. He says, you're wrong. And eventually I would come to the point of saying, okay, Lord, you're right. I was wrong. And, and, once I did that, he'd say, oh, good, you're forgiven. And you know what would happen? Within a day or two, I'd be angry again. And God says, you're in sin. And I'd argue, no, I'm not. And eventually it got to the point where I was arguing for months to weeks to days to hours. And then came the beautiful time where I was in the middle of an outburst of wrath. And God says, you're in sin. And I got to the point where I just stopped disagreeing with God. Every time I agreed with him and said, okay, you're right, then I would have peace and forgiveness. Like, wow, I'm forgiven. But the more I would argue, I would still not have that peace. But I would argue with God because my pride says I wanted to be right. I was only angry because they did that thing. And that's what caused me. But this is here what I love what what David does begin to say. He says, I'm going to acknowledge my transgression. My sin is always before me. I know who I am. And then he says this against you and you alone have I sinned that, I, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. I was a sinner from the time I was born. And I'll prove it to you. I was not even able to speak. Couldn't even speak. I was sitting in a high chair. 
and my mother gave me this green mush that came from a Gerber's jar. She put it into my mouth, go nummy, 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 and I went, bleh. I spit it out. I didn't honor my mother and father, and I couldn't even speak, and I was already sinning. She knew it was good for me. She knew I needed to eat it, and I'm like, bleh, I don't like it. She said, ah, you got to try it again. Just clean up the mouth. Oh, here, bleh. I dishonored her. I was sinning already there. I couldn't even walk. I couldn't even talk, but I could sin. Amazingly, and then I just, just understand as I got older, <laughs> I got better at it. <laughs> I got better at sinning, I got better at hiding, and I got better at all those things. But I recognized, and this is what, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. I know that I'm a sinner. You want light. And in the hidden places, you will make me to know wisdom. You're going to grant me, in, in my very core of my heart, what your truth really is. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. He's crying out to God, only you can cleanse me. And then he says this, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me and this is incredible in verse 12. He says, the joy of my salvation. He doesn't say restoring to me the salvation. He knew he still had it, even though he sinned. He says, but I have no joy. But the joy will come as I confess my sin. I agree with you. And then he says, and uphold me by your generous spirit. It has to be your work that holds me. It's your work that moves me. This is what you do. And so we see here so beautifully that what we're learning here in this portion is the first thing that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John 16, verse 9, because they do not believe in me. Recognize who he is. He's the Savior. All men must come through him. Only his death on the cross is propitiation for sin. Only his death on the cross makes us right with God. It's only Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's no other way to God. And then he says, it's me first. And then he says this, of righteousness, of the lifestyle that I've lived, will also judge. The Spirit is going to show you what's right and what's wrong. And then the third thing is this. He says in verse 11, of judgment. Of judgment. And he says, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Understand that the very first time that he judged anybody was an anointed cherub, Satan, Lucifer. He judged him. Lucifer had pride. God cast him down, made him leave his presence. And so amazingly, we say all sin must be judged. You can either accept that your sin is judged on the cross through the work of Jesus Christ, or I'll deal with the judgment on my own. I'll stand up and allow you to judge me in my sin. That's a dangerous spot. We'd be like Job. <laughs> if I ever got to the point, you judge me for my sin, my hand would be over my mouth so fast, and I would say, oh, wretched man that I am. But we recognize that God gives us the grace. And, and we can recognize that, the, 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 as God said here, he says, because the ruler of this world is judged. And, and this is that key. There's another portion. I just want to read it to you. For you note-takers, you can simply jot it down. But it's important for you to recognize this. this isn't the first time Jesus says this. But in John chapter 12, verse 31 
through 33, Jesus says this, now the judgment of this world, now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And this he said, sanctifying, but signifying by what death he would die. He said, the rule of this world is judged. And now my goal is this, to judge sin. And, and if I'm lifted up, if I'm on the cross, the death that I'm going to die, all men can now come to me. All men will be there. And it's so important that he's going to draw all men to himself because of the work that he does on the, on, on the cross. And this is where the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes in. So you can be convicted of a standard, the righteous standard that Jesus lived, and you're still not right with God. Why? Because you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can be convicted of a judgment that's going to come. He says, I judge Satan, and I'm going to judge the rest of the world. They will be judged in their sins, and all sin will be judged. You have to believe this because the word of God declares this. So now we recognize as a Christian, you can do two things with conviction. When, when a word is spoken or you're reading in your devotions, the word of God comes, you can either walk away like these men, and all you see is what? Sand and footprints. Sand and footprints. No people, no one was convicted, so they came to Jesus Christ. No one came and kneeled down before him asking for forgiveness. There was only him and the woman. And you can walk away like these people walked away. And how many times do we as Christians, we hear a word in, in a message, and what do we choose to do? Wow, you're right, i got to get that right in my life. I don't know if the Holy Spirit has spoken to any of you this morning that you need to get something right in your life. And now you have two choices. If the Spirit spoke to you about a specific sin that you need to be, make it right, you can either walk out this building and simply acknowledge, like, yeah, that, that was, i got to work on that. Or you could do this. You can come and you can get prayer. And you can recognize and in your heart saying, Holy Spirit, help me loathe this sin. Help me despise this sin. And help me pursue the, the purity of holiness that is in you. That you give to me through your spirit. And help me walk this truth that you're showing me. You can either come and you can accept that conviction of the spirit. And, and you can walk to God, or you could simply say, I'm going to walk away from God. And it's amazing that we usually have to do one of the two things. Now, there's a passage in the book of Romans, and I want to share it with you, this so you can be aware of just how these two choices are. In Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18 to verse 21, he makes this statement, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God says, if you reject my path through Jesus Christ, my wrath, the punishment for sin, is going to be revealed. Because, verse 19, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, for they are without excuse. You look at the stars and you think, oh my goodness, how did all these stars come into being? And God says, I made them. And you want to know how I made them? Amazingly. It says in the scriptures that said, and God made the stars also. Think about that. Think about making billions and billions and billions of stars and how much energy it would make. I mean, I make a light bulb, I would be excited. 
God makes suns and stars, stars so big that hundreds of our suns could fit in. And he says, oh, I made stars also. This is what he's able to do with his power. And, and what are we able to do with ours? And so nature declares the glory of God, the power of God, as we understand that everything is so perfectly, wonderfully made. And then we see this. After he says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, although they recognized that God created all these things, they did not glorify him as God. They said, I know you're God, and I don't care. I know you're God, and it doesn't make a difference. I'm not here to give you glory. Nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to become wise, they become fools. Thinking that there's another way to come to God except the only way that he said you can. And there are a lot of people that say, but if it can, I come by works. Can I come by this? Can I come by that? Maybe only you needed Jesus, but I can come through another way. No, there's no other way. There just isn't. And God says there's only one way to get right with me, and that's to have your sins paid for. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You have to accept sinless blood. There was only one person that said sinless blood. Do you understand that Jesus didn't die of old age? He just didn't say, okay, well, I'm going to come, and I'm going to live here, and then I'm going to die, and then my death is atoning. No, do you understand that he was brutally sacrificed? His blood was spilled violently so that we could receive forgiveness of sin. That's what it took for our sin to be forgiven. Not just Jesus coming and dying, but Jesus coming and being sacrificed in a brutal, violent way. And this is what we recognize it here. When you reject the things of God, he says, you're without excuse. Because one, you, you didn't, you, although you knew God, although you could tell by nature there was a creator, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, became futile in their hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to become wise, they become fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men. In other words, that I can take God and his word as an opinion. I don't know if you've ever heard of the ten opinions. There, there's ten of them. One, one opinion is you should have no other God before me. Another opinion is, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Oh, wait, they're commandments, not opinions. You know that they're not opinions. You know the word of God is not just God's opinion. It's truth that's revealed to us. And what happens is we can either accept it or we can walk away. In the very next chapter of the book of Romans, it says this in chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, for there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law. As many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Nor for the hearers, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. If you can hear and agree with me, say, yeah, well, I think you're right. It doesn't make you justified. It's when you begin to do it, when you come to Christ, you allow the conviction of the Spirit. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having a law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, being, and I think this is so important, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves and their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. When you realize, wow, what I did was wrong, you, you come to this point of saying, what am I going to do? And this is why we come to this area, and I think it's so important to recognize 
John chapter 8, verse 9, when these heard it, being convicted by their conscience, they went out one by one. They left God. And, and so understand that we can choose to walk and recognize that when I'm convicted of my sin, I can either walk away or I can either come to Christ and I can fall down before him and I can thank him for the blood that he shared, shed and I can thank him for the work that he's done. And what happens is this, is my life becomes one of worship. It just becomes one of worship. It's not, not do's and don'ts. It becomes worship. It's like, I want to hold your hand. I want to let you live your life through me. Let me become this instrument, a vessel for you and your glory because you've given me eternal life. And I want to give this life back to you as an act of worship, as as an act of, of just gratitude. And so it's so important to recognize this is the most devastating part of this passage, not the woman caught in adultery, men walking away. And I want to challenge you that if you were challenged this morning, you can choose to walk away. You can just choose to walk out these doors and say, well, I'll work on it. Or you could literally come to the place saying, I need prayer. I need need the Holy Spirit in me so that I can literally, like like the scripture was declaring, like, like, like Pastor Lowell had read, I want to loathe the sin that's in me. I want to say, oh, wretched man that I am, and I want to come to Jesus Christ, and I want his life to be lived through me, his power to be lived through me, through that working of the Holy Spirit. May that be our hearts. Amen? Father, we are so grateful that that you, through your spirit, through your work, um, give us life, and that life is only found in Jesus Christ. You so love the world, you gave your only begotten Son, that it was him, his work, If he is lifted up, he's going to draw all men to himself. By this, this work alone, do we realize that this is it. This is the work. Jesus said, no sign am I going to give, but the sign of of the man, the prophet Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So I'm going to be three nights and three days in the heart of the earth. and, And I'm going to die. I'm going to be in the grave, but I will rise again and I will be the first fruits that when I have conquered death through me, you will know that death is conquered. And if you come to me recognizing that I paid that price on the cross, that I no longer die, we no longer have to die. We can have that life in Jesus. We recognize it's in you. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the Holy Spirit that first draws us to you, that we have to believe in the person, the work of Christ. And then we have to believe that there's a righteous standard and a standard that we fail so miserably. And and then we realize that because we failed, there's a judgment to that standard. Those three things, your spirit speaks to every man, woman, and child. And you've spoken to us that today. And so we realize that our sin has been judged on the cross. We realize that standard. It's not our life, but Jesus, your life. And we believe that you and only you are that standard. Only you are the way that we come to a right relationship with God. So we accept your your conviction in every area of our lives. And so lead us, teach us, draw us to your own heart. We ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.